0: This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. The COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the creative system is broken, serving advertisers over artists. On Patreon, creators can build a more sustainable income source and their fans get access to exclusive community and premium content through monthly memberships. If you're a creator or simply love one, check out patreon.com now and change the way art is valued. From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
1: Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from the Washington Post.
2: Hey, it's Philip Rucker at the Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 9th. Today, the life of George Floyd, the strange relationship between DC and the White House, and why one cop took a knee.
3: I am right now in the parking lot of the Fountain of Praise mega church here in Southwest Houston.
2: Oh, I release Hernandez as a reporter for The Post based in
1: Texas.
3: Today is the funeral and burial service for George Floyd. He will be buried next to his mother out here in, in Southwest Houston. The city is basically in mourning for George Floyd, who was a member of the Third Ward community. He grew up in the CUNY homes, which are housing projects in the Third Ward. And folks from all over Houston, in fact, and from Texas and other states, came yesterday for the public viewing.
4: Yes, I actually went inside twice. Once I went inside the first time, I got back in line.
5: It was beautiful. He was dressed in a a very beautiful suit.
3: Thousands of people streamed in for 15 minutes walking past Floyd's coffin. And then today you have a bunch of dignitaries, celebrities, his family, and other people who are here for a private funeral.
2: So you have been talking to people who knew George Floyd in Houston. What, what did you learn about his early life?
3: Well, George didn't exactly have the easiest life in the world. He was raised by a single mother, the oldest of five children, and they didn't have much, which is something you hear his siblings say over and over again. But that he had a huge heart, was a gifted athlete in both football and basketball. I think what a lot of people, particularly in the third ward, remember is how big he was, six foot six.
6: Sometimes we would make fun and call him like a gentle giant.
3: Jonathan Veal is a high school
6: friend of George Floyd. He always supported other guys. Like he was, if you were his friend, one of the guys he felt like was in, in, in his circle, like he, he supported you, he stood by you. Last communication I had from George was on my birthday in January. He sent me a message and we, first he was saying, you know, happy birthday. And, you know, kind of going back and forth, just kind of re, you know reliving some memories. And he told me he was in Minnesota working with a Christian organization that was, you know, helping kind of springboard his career. He was renewing his faith and his faith was getting stronger.
3: This is a guy who was driven to, to make a difference, but, you know, encountered obstacles along the way. He sometimes fell in with folks who were committing crimes in the community. I think his latest arrest here in Houston was an aggravated robbery. He was a man who was remembered by most people in his community as being super loving, super accepting.
4: I think when he got to Minnesota, he was there on redemption. He, was, he wasn't, he I mean, people don't leave here to go to Minnesota for anything else but a better life.
3: Pastor Patrick Unguolo is a leader of a church and ministry in the BRICS, which is the CUNY Homes Housing Project.
4: I, uh was doing some ministry trying to reach this neighborhood
3: it was there that he met George Floyd who introduced him to the neighborhood and the neighbors to be able to begin his ministry
4: he was like a gateway he was a person of peace who opened up the neighborhood who introduced us to people
6: here's the thing it's it's almost surreal in high school it was the last day of our junior year we were hanging out just hanging out at this uh, one place we call the hill it was just last year of school we' were just kind of talking and just Somehow the conversation shifted to college and the future. And one of the things Floyd said, Floyd says, I'm going to be big, man. I'm going to touch the world. And he's doing it, but it's just not in the way that we want it to happen. You know, He, he probably could never imagine it. it. would He would be touching the world as a result of his, of his life.
7: George Floyd deserved the dignity and the respect that we accord all people simply because they are children of a common God. And it's very unfortunate that we have to be here, but we're going to celebrate the life of George Floyd today.
2: So over the past couple of days, there have been funeral services for Floyd. What have they been like?
3: The the services for Floyd have been sort of a gathering place for lots of different folks who have been active in in the fight for racial justice, both you know entertainers, as well as politicians, activists who like the Reverend Al Sharpton, who had led actually here outside Fountain of Praise a group of family into the church a couple hours ago. His coffin is actually entirely like gold; it it it, it glistens. When you saw his face and you approached the coffin, what were you thinking what went through
5: your head? I was thinking about um, May 25th. I was thinking about the day he was murdered. And then I started thinking about my 19-year-old son and how I would not want this on any family.
3: Angel Kirby is a Houston school administrator.
5: At this point, it's about action. We have neighbors who are Trump supporters. Um, And we've been very good friends with them. And I hope that that this doesn't change a whole lot. It's just that, um, just like a lot of the other comments have been uh, just not at the right place at the right time. We just didn't think that putting out your Trump sign this week was good timing, right?
3: Did you approach them about that? Uh, My husband did. How did that go?
5: Um, You know, because the next door neighbor is uh, a Trump supporter, he's also a pastor, my husband was very respectful we've gone to church with these people, we've had dinner with these people, and so it was difficult to just know that they supported uh, someone who's been dividing the country, but my husband had the conversation and and basically it ended, we're going to continue to respect each other um, like we've been doing for the last, you know, 10, 12 years. It's just that um, it, it hurt a little. It just, it hurt a little.
3: Do you think they were hurt as well?
5: I think they were. Um, they've reached out to us since the conversation and just said that they value our um, friendship and they moved the sign from in front of their yard and I have a picture of it to their flower bed. So that means a lot to us.
2: What has surprised you about the services?
3: I think the diversity. Unfortunately, I've had to cover quite a few funerals after police shootings in, in my career. And what was always striking then was just, you know, how homogenous some of those demonstrations and some of those cries for justice were. Here, it's so many different kinds of people, and people you just wouldn't expect, you know, folks who have had changes of heart, who are saying, yes, what happened to George Floyd was absolutely awful. That collective experience is, is not no longer limited to the people who are hurt by police brutality but people who in some cases benefit from systems in this country that you know perpetuate some of that inequality.
7: To the friends and family again, I'm not here today as a Democrat. We're not here as Republicans. We're not here because we're rich or poor. We're not here because we're conservative or liberal. We are here because Pastor Remus Wright was so right when he said, we have no expendables in our community. George Floyd was not expendable. This is why we're here.
2: Our Elise Hernandez is a reporter for The Post, based in Texas. You also heard the voices of Pastor Patrick Unguolo, Jonathan Veal, Austane Brown, and Angel Kirby. Brittany Martin also contributed reporting to this story.
7: During the week of demonstrations in Washington, D.C., D.C. Mayor Harold Bowser was horrified when she saw that President Trump's administration was firing gas and munitions at peaceful demonstrators gathered outside the White House. So she and her administration wanted to find ways to create both safe spaces for protesters and to send a signal to the president that the streets of D.C. belong to the city of D.C. and not to the federal government. And so that's where the idea to paint a massive Black Lives Matter mural on 16th Street, which is in the blocks leading up to the White House, came out of. And so the mayor directed her city administration to paint the letters in big yellow street paint in the early hours of Friday morning. By the morning, you could see from space and from satellites, Black Lives Matter in giant yellow letters in the roads facing the White House. My name is Fennett Neuropil, and I cover D.C. government for The Washington Post.
2: And for those who haven't seen the photos online, I mean, it's just shocking how large it is. And it really takes over the block. And, and it's really right there in front of the White House.
7: Right. This is a city known for monuments and big displays and celebrations and having just the simple lettering Black Lives Matter in front of the White House created a really powerful juxtaposition in this moment in history where you really had a crescendo of anti-police violence uh, demonstrations around the country kind of a symbol that encapsulated the energy over the last several weeks
2: how did President Trump respond to the fact that this mural basically showed up on his doorstep overnight?
7: In public, President Trump has been going after the mayor on Twitter for the first time, and he's been blasting her as always wanting handouts and refusing the help of the National Guard, even though she's lost control over her own police department. He repeatedly called her incompetent when Mayor Bowser was asked to respond to these tweets. She said that the times that the nation is in calls for better leadership. But White House officials did tell my colleagues that they viewed the painting of this mural as a serious escalation in the tensions between the city and the White House. And they saw it as an affront to the White House.
2: So tell me more about those tensions and this awkward relationship between the city of Washington, D.C. and the entity that is the federal government and the White House.
7: Washington, D.C. is one of the most misunderstood places in America, despite being our nation's capital. Yes, it's the seat of federal government, but it's also a city of 700,000 residents who are paying taxes, who vote in presidential races, but have no voting representation in Congress. So D.C. has its own mayor. It has its own city council and they can govern their own affairs. But the federal government has powers over the city that it doesn't have over states. And you saw that coming to a head uh, with the demonstrations over the death of George Floyd. When demonstrations started to take a more serious turn and you started seeing businesses getting looted, that's when the federal government decided to use their powers to really escalate military and federal law enforcement presence on the streets of D.C. The mayor pushed back against that because her argument is that I'm a mayor of a big city just like Chicago, just like New York City, just like Los Angeles, where you wouldn't send overwhelming federal force to deal with what's essentially a local problem. You walk me through your thinking on when when you say, you know, it is time to be more aggressive against the president. It's time to it's time to ramp up the rhetoric.
1: You know, I don't think there was ever like a communication
7: So you
2: interviewed Mayor Bowser about this dispute that she's having with the president. What did you say?
1: One question I keep asking myself is, what did they think we were going to do? Say, oh, okay. I mean, anybody in the White House, especially the ones who've been in political life, which has been some of them, know that they would have done exactly what I did. Fight back. They would have done exactly that.
7: One of the big arguments Mayor Bowser made is that she did what any of the White House officials would have done if you had federal law enforcement coming into your city without your permission, without your request.
1: Uh, I would have also said Trump has said many times, "When somebody hits him, he hits him back." And
2: so I don't, I don't know that they would have expected any different. But is she those? worried that her? response to all of this might backfire on the city, that there could be pretty major negative repercussions for that?
7: And I asked her that. Were you worried that President Trump might retaliate against D.C. by not supporting additional uh, COVID-19 CARES Act funding or attempting to take over MPD again or any other any other measure?
1: I mean, obviously, I have every, every anxiety you can imagine or every concern that you could possibly think of, I've had
7: federal government has the power to take over the Metropolitan Police Department, which the White House chief of staff threatened to do. The city is currently trying to get hundreds of millions of dollars of COVID-19 relief funding from the federal government, which the Republican Senate and the president have opposed. Uh, When I asked this question to Bowser, if she's worried about the repercussions to the city, she made the point that
1: at the end of the day, I had to do what's morally right, legally right. And it turns out that those things are also politically and um, we've already gotten screwed before any Black Lives Matter plaza. They already screwed us over on, on money and we've already had to fight them off on, on riders. He already said that he doesn't support statehood for Washington, D.C., for partisan reasons. They've already done all of those things to us.
7: So Mayor Bowser really saw not much to lose uh, in defending her city.
2: But also when it comes to this mural, I think a lot of people were a big fan of it because it seems like a, a larger-than-life form of trolling the president. But I think a lot of people were very critical of it because D.C. itself has a lot of issues with over-policing, over-criminalization, and Mayor Bowser is the target of a lot of those criticisms. And many people have said that she has not actually been on the forefront of criminal justice issues.
7: So there were a lot of demonstrators who saw the Black Lives Matter mural on 16th Street as pure symbolism and an empty gesture.
0: The mural that Mural Bowser has put downtown um, in Black Lives Plaza um, is not enough. It's not enough to just show solidarity without actually taking action. This is John Henry Williams. I am an organizer here helping to work um, with Black Lives Matter D.C.
7: The day after the mural was installed, some demonstrators got to work adding defund the police to the end of Black Lives Matter. Um,
0: And we're calling her to step up and defund the police. Painting and creating Black Lives uh, Plaza um, is not actually doing the work that she needs to do to protect people here in D.C. And throughout this entire protest has actually um, put the MPD out um, and created curfews that have hurt people.
7: Long before the demonstrations uh, came to D.C., Mayor Bowser has been fending off questions about her own record on policing and criminal justice issues in the city. Activists were angry at the mayor for her opposition to the decriminalization of fare evasion, which is a crime that's disproportionately uh, enforced against Black Americans. Mayor Bowser also faced criticism for her handling of police body-worn camera footage uh, programs and the release of these tapes after in the aftermath of uh, police killing or the use of deadly force. So for a lot of people, when they saw the mayor put a big Black Lives Matter mural on 16th Street, the question was, is this symbol going to be followed by substance? One of the big arguments that we've been hearing from activists is that they see that mural is ultimately just symbolism. What do you say to that?
1: I mean, what would you say to the people who argue to take down Confederate statues or change names of buildings? Are those empty gestures. Or those symbols that uh, changing them uh, matters, and so I have. Uh, if, I don't know what critics you're talking about, but if I if I had stopped acting because of every criticism, I wouldn't get a lot done in public life.
7: The mayor did say that you can see from the statistics uh, for police stops in the district that there is work to be done for the district and there is improvements to be done. Uh, in some ways, she described the tensions between a community and policing to be almost inevitable.
1: I also know that the balance in the relationship between community and police is always tenuous. And um, you've probably heard me say this before, but we work very hard every day Uh, to make sure that balance um, is one that we
7: invest in. Yeah, when I talked to the mayor, she said one of the changes she wants to make is to make it easier to fire uh, problematic cops and more quickly. Today, the D.C. Council is taking up legislation uh, with a host of reforms to policing. So the big question for the mayor is whether she'll sign these uh, provisions into law and will actually deliver on policy changes in addition to the artwork.
2: And I think in some ways... The position that Mayor Bowser is in represents the position that a lot of mayors are in right now, that all of a sudden a lot of their constituents are calling for a pretty liberal change on, on defunding the police, in some case people calling for abolishing the police, and they have to answer for that. And I think that you've seen mayors who are kind of struggling to pretty radically alter their stance on policing and what is and is not politically palatable just in the matter of
7: days. Mayors across the country are facing pressure uh, to take bolder steps on how they respond to policing. Minneapolis Mayor uh, Jacob Fry was asked during a demonstration whether he would support defunding police. And when he started his answer by saying that he wouldn't support the full abolition of the police, he was quickly booed off. That illustrates the kind of bind that uh, mayors are in, that they're going to have to find ways to both accommodate the wishes of the demonstrators who f- hit the streets with the uh, wishes of other constituents who might not want to see as bold or radical action.
2: Fennett Nierapil reports on D.C. government for The Post.
0: Between tour cancellations, lost creative gigs, and shrinking ad revenue— The COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the system-supporting creative people is broken. Patreon offers a better way. We help creators make up lost revenue and build a more sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to their fans. In turn, fans get access to exclusive community and premium content and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out patreon.com now and help change the way art is valued.
2: And now one more thing.
0: I volunteered to go downtown
4: to assist with the protests, etc. And I remember feeling really anxious.
2: Carlton Wilhoyt is a D.C. police officer. Last week, a photo went viral of Officer Wilhoyt kneeling in support of protesters.
4: Because as a Black man, of course, I'm super upset of the injustices that's going on around the country. And it hurts. So I just wanted that to be known. And as you know, that can be difficult, especially wearing a, a police uniform. So before that photo, myself and a couple of colleagues, we were all just like sitting around. All of a sudden, it's like one protester came to approach us. And then it was like a gathering of protesters. They wanted to know where we stood. They wanted to know if we were opposed to what was going on across the country with the killing of black people at the hands of the law. So at that moment, they was like, kneel with us, please kneel with us. And it was no question. I um, looked at my coworkers to see if everyone was down to, or in that moment wanted to. I knew I was going to, and that's when we kneeled. And someone in the crowd just took that photo. I wanted to be a police officer because of an incident that happened to me in 2012, 2013. My sister and I and a friend that um, attended Howard University were headed to my grandparents' house in Fiji County, Maryland. Right before we were turned into the driveway, we were pulled over. And long story short, he pulled me out the car, him and his partner. I was pepper sprayed. I was punched in the face and come to find out it was all because of a tag light um, that was out. A $5 bulb, if that, $2 bulb. And that whole exchange and that experience just made me want to uh, make a difference when I was proposed the question of joining the police department by my uncle, who also works for the Metropolitan Police Department. And I'm like, well, if I do this, I can definitely ensure that no one else will experience what I experience while I'm there. For an example, like if I pull someone over and they ask me, hey, officer, why are you pulling me over? And instead of Trying to like go through a power struggle, I can be super informative, super aware of how they're feeling in the moment. Because at the end of the day, being pulled over p- by a police officer is super scary. I wouldn't have to admit, especially for myself, even as an officer. Some people may struggle with it because they may not fully understand the reason why people are kneeling. Not because they're, they're truly being ignorant; they just don't. They just not informed of how it feel to be on the other side of the law or may not experience racism. As a Black officer and as a Black person, it's my job to inform them why I made the decision to do what I do. I feel like it's my responsibility. It's not nothing against uh, my police department at all. It's just a personal stance I have to take for myself and for my people.
2: Carlton Wilhoyt is a police officer in Washington, D.C. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, you might want to sign up for daily Post Reports emails. The other day, I was talking to a listener named Brian, and he doesn't even use a podcast app. He signs up for the emails, and when a new episode drops, he gets a message, he opens it up, and voila, he's listening to the latest episode of Post Reports. Easy, right? Sign up for the emails at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. If you're a podcaster, YouTuber, musician, writer, illustrator, if you're a creative person of any kind or simply love one, now is the time to check out patreon.com. Now is the time to join the millions of fans and creators who are changing the way art is valued.
7: The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans, and yet there's complexity at every turn